0: When I was growing up, uh, people used to talk about being a wise guy. Uh, generally, it was a way of telling someone off, a bit like this quote from The Godfather. So, you th- I can't, I'm not going to do the Godfather voice. So you think you're a wise guy, eh? Um, I can do the A bit because I'm a Queenslander. Yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking about this a bit this week. I'm not sure if the word wise gets used much at the moment though the idea is around. At schools, you hear uh, teachers ask students, are you making good choices? I think good choices is pretty much the same as wise choices. It's about choosing behaviours that lead to success, uh, choices that lead to not getting into trouble. Uh, We may not talk about wisdom, but we do talk about good choices. Or we talk about smart money or smart investing. So we might not use the word wise, but the idea is very much part of our culture. Where do you think wisdom, good choices, smartness, where do you find it? Where do you learn it? Well, today we're starting a series on wisdom that's going to take us through till about the middle of the year. It's really a series on Proverbs. Proverbs is a part of the Bible lots of Christians like. You might find other parts of the Bible hard work. What relevance does this bit of the Bible have to me? But Proverbs, even though it's ancient, Proverbs feels like a part of the Bible you know what to do with. Even though you might have to be a little bit creative uh, to bring a proverb, an ancient proverb, into our time and culture, but you read a proverb, you do what it says. Uh, for many, uh, for this reason, many Christians like the proverbs. Uh, for others, we're a bit wary of the proverbs. They can feel oppressive. Just another bunch of expectations I can't live up to. Rules that keep me down. I reckon the famous end of the book, Proverbs 31, is like that. It's polarising. Christian women either love it or loathe it. And in the mix of this, whether you love Proverbs or find it difficult, I reckon the big question is, what's it say to us about Jesus? How do the wise sayings in Proverbs fit with the big story of the Bible? What's it got to say about God's plan to save and renew the world through Jesus? Proverbs is part of the Old Testament. How does it help Christians know Jesus, love Jesus, trust Jesus, live for Jesus? And for these reasons, especially because we're wanting to read the whole Bible in the light of Jesus, we're kicking off our series in Proverbs, not in Proverbs, but in 1 Corinthians. And we're doing this because 1 Corinthians tells us God's wisdom is all about Jesus. God's wisdom is all about Jesus. In particular, it's all about Jesus' death on the cross. So have a look in your Bible from verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. Many of us know the gospel records of the crucifixion. The crowds, the soldiers, the religious leaders, they all mock Jesus. You think you're the saviour? You think you're God's king? What are you doing on a cross? Get down from there. Uh, Crucifixion was considered uh, the most degrading, most shameful way to die. It wasn't only a death sentence, it was torture in public, the whole world gets to see your agony, your shame, your weakness. As verse 18 says, people see the cross as shameful and foolish. It's very weird how followers of Jesus focus on the cross. We just sang a song about a cross. We wear crosses as jewellery. Many buildings used by churches have big crosses on the top. It's very weird. The cross, the message of the cross, the message that Jesus' death brings salvation is polarising. As verse 18 says, For some people it's foolishness, for others it's power. And that's a really interesting contrast, isn't it? Uh, verse 18 doesn't say foolishness and wisdom, as you might expect. It says foolishness and power. Why? Why? In a moment we're going to hear, the cross is God's wisdom. But the contrast between foolishness and power gets to the heart of the issue. The only reason Jesus' death on a cross is wise is because it is God's power. But hang on, how can someone being executed, how can someone being shamed and defeated be power? It's because the cross is the only way for salvation. The cross shows that any human attempt at wisdom or power, when it comes to knowing God, when it comes to eternal life with God, any human attempts are weak and foolish. The cross says we need God to act, God to save. And this is how God has always worked. God has always done things in a way that shows that our attempts are futile, but his love and power is great. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is this written? It's from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah's day, the problem was God's people thought they were wise. They thought they could outsmart God. They thought their fake religion, their skin-deep religion, where they did the performance, they showed up at the temple, but it was just a show, just a cover for them, whilst they abused and oppressed powerless people. They thought that outsmarted God, that God would be pleased by this kind of religion. That's the context that gets us to the quote in verse 19. God says his punishment is he's going to bring salvation, but they will miss out. In all their cleverness and so-called wisdom, their eyes are closed, their ears are blocked, so they won't see and receive God's salvation. It's the same thing with people who see the power of the cross as folly. As we get into Proverbs, we're going to be hearing lots of practical wisdom, things that make a difference every day of the week. But is this really wisdom if at the end of your life, even a very successful life, is it truly wise to do life well and just end up as worm food or even worse, to face God's eternal punishment? True wisdom is wisdom for eternity. And that's where every other source of wisdom fails. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Who does our world think is wise? Maybe it's those who succeed in business, the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezos of the world. Maybe it's the respected experts in various fields, the people who get interviewed in the media. Verse 20 says, no matter what wisdom you've got, whether it's deep philosophy or strict religion, the teachers of the law, it's useless. It's useless when, for knowing God and being saved for eternity. It's foolishness when it comes to what really matters. But Why? Why do even the smartest and wisest people miss God's salvation? It's because the cross, the death of Jesus for salvation, the cross is offensive, weak and foolish. It's offensive, weak and foolish. Verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The cross is offensive to the Jewish religion. And Paul, who wrote this, should know. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's not being racist when he says Jews demand signs. He's talking about himself before he met Jesus, or better that Jesus met him. They thought God's king would come in power, that he'd defeat the government, the Roman Empire, and make Israel great again. But here's Paul and other Christians and they go around saying the great king of glory, the promised forever king of Israel died the most shameful, embarrassing death you can imagine. He didn't die on the battlefield, sword raised high. He died in weakness and shame. And that's offensive. That God's king, that God himself would die in shame, blasphemous even. And it still is today, isn't it? For Jews and Muslims, the idea that God would lower himself, even that he would lower himself to take on human flesh, but particularly that he would go down to the cross is blasphemy. Others who think they're Christian, they reject the cross because they think it is divine child abuse, the father torturing the son. Uh, The reason that's not true is it doesn't take into account the triune nature of God. Father, Son and Spirit are united in their work on the cross. But The point is, the cross remains offensive and weak to religious people. The cross also seems foolish to non-religious people. Does salvation from sin really require the death of Jesus? That sounds stupid. If God is really God, couldn't he just get over sin? Couldn't he just let everyone into heaven and forgive everyone? Well, not 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 everyone. Not warmongering dictators. He shouldn't forgive them. And not abusers or racists. And definitely not those who don't use their blinkers to change lanes. But surely God should forgive everyone else. At least the people I think are good enough. Now, I've put the argument in a certain way to make my point, but I'm sure you've heard that kind of thing. The cross is offensive. It's weak and foolish. And maybe I've actually made the case a bit too strongly. If you're not a Christian, you might be nodding your head, yes, you're right, the cross is foolish, I should get out of here. If you are a Christian, maybe this has got you worried. Have you been fooled to trust in something everyone else sees right through? Is the cross the emperor's new clothes? If the cross is a stumbling block and is foolish, why does anyone trust in Jesus? Verse 24 is the answer. It's the work of God. The call of God. God opening eyes to see, hearts to believe, enabling those he's called to see the cross of Christ is true wisdom and strength. By ourselves, we would never see this. We'd never see how deep the problem of our sin is that it requires the death of Jesus to pay the price. We'd never recognise that Christ taking our sin onto himself, identifying with us in his death and through his death defeating sin so that he might rise to new life and reign eternally as our saviour, without the call of God, you'd never see it. You'd see straight through it, you'd realise it is weakness and folly. But when you do, when God opens your eyes, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, winning through weakness, salvation through shame, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But what difference does this make? If God's wisdom is shown in the cross of Christ, what difference does this make? And how do we see this wisdom worked out in our lives? How do we show it in our lives? Well, Paul goes on to give two examples, two bits of supporting evidence to show this is what God is like. And those two bits of evidence are who God saves and how God saves. So first up, who God saves. And the Bible says, look around. Look at the people who are part of your church family, and sorry to say, most of us are pretty ordinary. Have a listen from verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's God saying? He's telling the Corinthian church to have a look around. Look at who God has saved. They're not an impressive bunch, at least in their culture's eyes. They're not philosophers. They're not highly educated. Not many PhDs or master's degrees among them. They've got no influence or power. They're not people who own big businesses. They don't have political power. No one's going to listen to them. They're not the kind of people who could form a lobby group. They're not high-born. They're not a bunch of trust fund kids. They don't have big inheritances. They're not lords or ladies. Most of them have family names no one's heard of. But God. But God chose them, of all people, to be saved. He's chosen them to receive the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ. He's chosen them to redeem, to pay the price for the forgiveness of their sin. This is the wisdom of God. And why has God done this? So no one can boast. No one can boast in anything or anyone Other than God. If the church in Corinth, if our church was full of the brightest and best, the most popular and powerful, then maybe you'd think they're God's people because of who they are and what they can offer Him. If God called the smartest people, you'd think it was, well maybe actually they weren't called by God, they were just smart enough to work out how to get forgiven. If God called called the nicest people or the most religious, they would think it was because of their virtue or goodness. But that's not how God works. It's not how God works at the cross. It's not how God works in salvation. God uses ways that look weak and foolish. He does it to shame the proud and self-reliant. God calls people who are trapped in sin. He does it to shame the self-righteous. And he does this so his people can only boast in him. But we get this mixed up all the time. We love to emphasise those who are impressive In our culture site, Christians are just as susceptible to celebrity culture as anyone else. We love to roll out the Christian celebrity as part of our evangelism, whether it's the Christian sports person or the Christian actor or even the reality TV star. Sometimes it's the Christian academic or scientist. We love to roll them out saying, look at this famous person. They love Jesus. You should too. You think you're smart, well guess what? He's an even smarter person and they believe in Jesus, so you should too. We get sucked in by the power of celebrity which serves to undermine the no boasting gospel of Jesus. Of course it's great that God saves famous or smart people. They need free forgiveness as much as anyone. But these somebodies... Are no more valuable, no more or less deserving than all of us nobodies. So that's the first bit of evidence that the foolish cross is God's wisdom. We see it in those God chooses to save. The second way the foolishness, the foolish wisdom of the cross is shown is how God says, how God chooses to get the gospel out. He uses weak messengers for his powerful message. Verse 1, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. So it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing While I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Corinth was a city that valued rhetoric Talented public speakers. It was the entertainment of the day. It wasn't so much about the content, but how it was presented. Not much has changed. And so when Paul showed up to bring the gospel to Corinth, he did something really weird. He didn't use the tricks of the trade. He didn't pull out his rhetorical bag of tricks and impress everyone with how clever an argument he could put together. He spoke the truth about Jesus with weakness and trembling. It wasn't because he didn't know how to speak eloquently. In a way that would have impressed people and drawn a crowd. Paul himself tells us he was trained by some of the best public speakers. He knew how to do the tricks. He deliberately chose to put all those tools to one side and just delivered the message with weakness. This is a bizarre decision, isn't it? Who on earth would do that, get their worst speaker up on the big evangelistic talk? If he really wanted people to listen, if he really wanted people to be convinced, surely he should have used every tool at his disposal. Why on earth did he use weakness in a culture that values strength? Well, he tells us it's because his message, the gospel, is a message of weakness and folly. You can't speak the message of Christ crucified using the tools of power and strength. The method has to match the message. And also, by not using any tricks, as the nobodies start trusting in Jesus, Paul knew, they knew, everyone could see What convinced them wasn't Paul's rhetorical skills. They were converted by the power of God. Sadly, many Christians today and throughout history, we've not done the same. We've been more like the Corinthians, trying to impress people with whatever the culture values, rather than proclaiming the message of the cross using cross-shaped methods. I've already talked about our temptation to leverage celebrity. Paul would never have done that. We do this also in our churches. We may not have any celebrities to roll out, but we want our programs and services to be slick. We use the tools of entertainment, whether that's the pop culture tools of synths and electric guitars and videos or the high culture tools of choirs, organs and impressive language. Both can be used in ways that undermine the message of the cross. We are very quick to critique the the churches that use the pop culture. Why are we not so quick to critique those who just use the same tricks of high culture to impress people, both of which undermine the gospel? Uh, Many churches, church buildings, are designed to impress whether it's the the large stone buildings with vaulted ceilings or buildings that speak of simple nostalgia, at best we think they're assets for the gospel, things that will make Christianity seem powerful or comforting, but the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And there's no way you can dress it up as anything else. And in fact, dressing it up with nostalgia or entertainment just makes it more foolish because people can see straight through it. They can see what you're doing and they can see that the appearance doesn't match the substance. Now that doesn't mean we don't try our best to make the message clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 14 tell us that is not the case. Paul presented the gospel. We are to present the gospel in clear and culturally appropriate ways, in ways that are open and welcoming to those who don't know Jesus. But we don't undermine the gospel by using tricky tools of persuasion or manipulation. We proclaim the message that seems foolish and weak, trusting the Spirit's power to bring about salvation. Over the next few weeks we're going to be hearing the voice of wisdom in Proverbs. Much of what Proverbs has to say is very earthy wisdom. It's about work, money, how we speak, relationships. We're going to find it really practical. One temptation we'll have as we read Proverbs is we'll think it's a guidebook for success. How to be successful in the eyes of the world. But as we dig a bit deeper, we'll see that's not what real wisdom is about. True wisdom seems like foolishness. True wisdom can feel weak. True wisdom is seen in Christ crucified. We are not going to find success or power in the world's measure through reading Proverbs. If Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God... That's where Proverbs is going to take us. They're going to show us how to make good choices in following the crucified Christ. Let's pray. Father God, please open our eyes and hearts to see the cross as it really is, your power and wisdom. We praise you for making foolish the world's wisdom and weak the world's strength. Help us to deeply know this. May we turn away from trying to be strong or wise in our culture's eyes, but to live deeply cross-shaped lives, both as a church and in our families and as individuals. May we boast in nothing other than Christ. May we get rid of trying to do church or tell people about Jesus in impressive ways. May we not rob the gospel of your power. Lord God, we ask that you would be calling many people in our region, our friends and family. May you enable them to receive the wisdom of the cross. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.